In an excerpt from her book, Women Who Run With Wolves, Clarissa Pinkola Estes says, I once dreamt I was telling stories and felt someone patting my foot in encouragement. I looked down and saw that I was standing on the shoulders of an older woman who was steadying my ankles and smiling up at me. I said to her, No, no, come stand on my shoulders, for you are old and I am young. No, no, she insisted. This is the way it's supposed to be. I saw that she stood on the shoulders of a woman far older than she, who stood on the shoulders of a woman even older, who stood on the shoulders of a woman in robes, who stood on the shoulders of another soul, who stood on the shoulders. Today's daughter of change, Marilyn Lakin, is a woman with big shoulders. She was ahead of her time in a male-dominated world, and with grit, determination, and a strategic mind, rose through the ranks of medical academia. After earning a BSN from the University of Maryland and a master's degree from Boston University in maternal and child health nursing, Marilyn, who enjoyed asking questions and experimenting with more effective ways to provide health care, decided to get a doctorate in biological anthropology to pursue an academic career with an emphasis on research. Health equity has always been a passion for Marilyn, so most of her academic work focused on how to improve access to quality health care for vulnerable populations, such as low-income pregnant women and children. This required working with state and national government agencies and Congress on laws and health policies to improve access to care, and with professional organizations on changes and practice guidelines to better meet the needs of vulnerable women and children. Marilyn retired after working for 52 years and is now focused on learning more about the needs of aging people and identifying ways to reduce isolation and stimulate our brains. I'm excited to have the opportunity to converse with this wise woman who has helped to pave the way for the women who came after her. Welcome to the Daughters of Change podcast. My name is Marie Sola, and I'm a firm believer that women and girls play a major role in creating change for our future. This podcast tells the stories of the women and girls who are creating that change, each in their own unique way. Every day is an opportunity to blaze new trails and set positive change in motion. The possibilities are endless. Let's get started. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Daughters of Change podcast. And I have a very special guest today. I have a wise woman who helped to pave the way for all of us that are out there in the workforce right now. And I am so excited for this particular conversation because let me tell you, you are going to love this woman. So Marilyn, Marilyn Lakin, Welcome, welcome to the Daughters of Change podcast. Thank you, Marie. It's delightful to be here. 
Yeah, I am so excited for you to have the opportunity to share your story, or should I say stories, and your journey with the listeners, because I know not only are they going to be inspired by what you have to say, but I feel that there a lot of this is going to be relatable, but to also see how you persevered and just like rose up to the ranks. It's just, it's awesome. I love it. So um, yeah, this is going to be fun. And I, I ask this question to everybody, Marilyn, because I just get the best answers. So I just, I've, I've started asking it on every podcast. What is something that people who meet you for the first time would be surprised to know about you? Well, I think one thing that they surprised to know about me is that I enjoy line dancing. <gasps> Marilyn, I didn't know that. You're going to have to come to Maine and we're going to have to go line dancing. <laughs> do you have cowboy boots? No, I don't. In fact, we do our line dancing mostly to songs from the 60s and the 70s. Oh, I love that. That's my music, actually. I've, I, but I didn't realize you could line dance that music. Okay, so you're bringing new horizons to me with line dancing. Oh, you could dance to almost anything. In fact, uh, this weekend we're dancing to Christmas music. Oh, even better. I love that. Awesome. So, Marilyn, you, as I mentioned, uh, you know, when I was introducing you, you've had a very illustrious and rich career. Can you sort of start at the beginning and walk us through your trajectory from nursing school to getting your doctorate in biological anthropology. Sure. Um, I would preface this with uh, things generally don't go the way you think or expect that they will. Uh, Ever since I was little, I wanted to be a nurse. And uh, that has never changed. I love being a nurse. And I began uh, my career with a bachelor's of nursing uh, from University of Maryland, and I loved it and decided that in the future, I wanted to be a teacher. So I needed to work for one year, and my area of expertise was going to be pediatrics. And I decided to do the most difficult thing I could think of doing. And I thought, if I could get through that, I can do anything. So my first job was at the clinical center at NIH uh, in the uh, Department of Pediatric Leukemia. Uh, And it was a wonderful experience. I was there for 13 or 14 months, fell in love with the children. Unfortunately, at that time, there were no cures for leukemia, and many of the children died. Uh, It was also during that time that I began to look around for where I wanted to go for a master's degree. And I figured, okay, I'm from the East Coast. I'm going to try the West Coast. So I began looking at UCLA and UCSF. But at the same time, there was a physician there. He was Japanese. And uh, he enjoyed talking to me, especially on the evening shift. And uh, he decided that I should be a supervisor. And I told him, I really don't want to be a supervisor. I want to be a teacher. He said, no, you be a supervisor. And he had met a wonderful dean from the Boston University, 
uh, School of Nursing and was very impressed with her. He said, no, you need to go to Boston. I said, no, I'm going to California. And then over the next few months, he began asking me things like, where did you go to high school? Or why did you want to be a nurse? Where did you get your bachelor's degree from? And I would answer these questions and they were just scattered here and there. And just as I was filling out the forms for UCLA, I got a letter in the mail uh, welcoming me to the Boston University <laughs> School of Nursing Master's Program in Pediatrics and Maternal Health. It seems that unbeknownst to me, he filled in the application. He signed my name. I mean, the whole thing was fraudulent. And um, he sent in a cover letter, and he had just enough information to fill in this, and he had did a cover letter for me. I've never seen the cover letter. Uh, and he also uh, even signed the form to get my grades from University of Maryland. So uh, I figured I have a, it was, came with a scholarship, and it even came with funds to support uh, living expenses. And here I was, I hadn't even filled out the other form yet, so I went to Boston University to get a master's degree in maternal and child health nursing. And I thoroughly loved it. At that time, uh, BU opened its students to be able to take courses at, at Harvard and several other schools in Boston. So I was taking courses in all kinds of various places and thoroughly enjoying myself. And after I graduated, I decided to return to Baltimore and work at Hopkins. They had an excellent pediatric program. And so I worked in their ambulatory care center uh, for a year, um, met my husband, uh, and then I decided to teach for a year. That had been my goal, and I wanted to see what that was like. So I tried that on for a year. Uh, this was during the uh, Vietnam War era. My husband was a pediatrician, and at that time, physicians right out of their residency were all expected to serve for two years in the armed forces. So we ended up in Augusta, Georgia, and I worked in the uh, hospital and department of pediatrics down there. Thoroughly enjoyed myself down there as well. Our son was born there. And then my husband and I agreed that he would finish his education first, and then it would be my turn. So we returned to Baltimore, and he became one of the first neonatologists in the country. Uh, and he was recruited to, uh, to Detroit, to Wayne State University, into the uh, pediatrics department. And so there we were in Detroit and I looked around and I had one child and it was an hour and a half to, uh, to Michigan State and it was a little over an hour to University of Michigan. I just didn't have time for all of that. And so Wayne State had a nice uh, department of sociology and I thought that made a whole lot of sense. I'll become a sociologist. And so I applied, was accepted, and also about that same time, it's expensive for childcare, and my husband wasn't earning that much. So uh, I looked for a job in the College of Nursing there, and I wanted to be a research assistant. I wanted to see what research was like. There weren't any positions for me there, but there was a position open in the OBGYN department, and I thought, a nurse in an OBGYN department in a medical school? I'd never heard of such a thing. Hmm. But I had a neighbor across the street who was adventuresome, and she says, oh, just go find out what it is. So I went over there, and I interviewed, and much to my surprise, I was hired as an instructor. 
So here I was, an instructor in the OBGYN department, uh, and I was also going for my doctorate in sociology. And I took wonderful courses in statistics and the sociology of sex roles and was enjoying some of that stuff, but I missed biology. And so I thought, I, I need something that combines the two of them. And so somebody said, why don't you become an anthropologist instead? And you can major in biological anthropology. That combines culture and biology, and you can apply it easily to nursing. Made a whole lot of sense. So that's how I got my doctorate in biological anthropology. Wow. And I love that you had a fairy godfather and all of that. You know, the- <laughs> I had lots of fairy godfathers yeah. and fairy yeah. godmothers. Yeah. And you know, many of us do. And it's, yeah. it's a matter of finding these people. And sometimes they find you. Yeah, yeah. It's really, it's important. But I love that story about, you know, the person that actually applied for you at BU and how that actually, you said you met your husband that way, right? No, I met him a year later back in Baltimore. Oh, that's right. When you, when you went back to Baltimore, that's right. But that whole trajectory and you, you were in a very male dominated field as I guess most women were back then, but especially in the medical field. And looking back at some of the challenges you faced as a woman starting out in such a male dominated career, Will you share a couple of stories with us about what you actually faced? Oh, sure. Um, there are some I probably shouldn't talk about, but there are quite <laughs> a few that I can. The first one was when I was introduced to the department. Uh, there was a faculty meeting, and I walked in, and there were two women and a whole bunch of men. And the two women were sitting against the wall. The men were at the table. And uh, the chair of the department said, oh, Marilyn, come over here, come over here, sit next to me, I can introduce you. So I sat down next to him. My married name, by the way, was Poland. Uh, Lakin is my birth name. Um, And he introduced me as, fellas, I'd like you to meet the gal that sleeps with Dr. Poland. Oh, I cringe. I know. That was my, I was, I was shocked and silenced. I really didn't know how to react to that one. Um, And my way of of dealing with things like this is that these are all data points. Um, These are things to think about. And then the question is, what kind of strategies do you develop to begin to address Mm -hmm. these things? And I've pretty much done this all of my life. So I have always had little notepads and and pens with me, as, as a good anthropologist should. And so I write down these, these quotes and then think about them later on. Uh, I got even with the chair many years later uh, and uh, explained the embarrassing thing I did to him, and he apologized for what he did to me, and I apologized for what I did to him. <laughs> so we remained friends. But, but that is an example of the sexism I faced, and also discrimination against nurses. Mm -hmm. Um, There were many faculty who couldn't understand what a nurse was doing in their medical school. Um, Things changed over time. And then there were lots of other examples. Um, For example, uh, right after I finished my doctorate, I was expected to do research. And there was a, um, a talk that I heard, and it was about sperm. And uh, the fact that there were lots of 
of studies. They're called cross-sectional studies where you study many, many different men at one point in time to take a look at their sperm count and the quality of the sperm. And there weren't very many prospective studies. In fact, there was only one. And it was a very small study, and it only followed the same men over a two or three month period of time. And so a lot of the the treatment for male infertility was based on a lack of, of knowledge. So in my spare time, I outlined a study on sperm. And at the same time, there were many um, theories that the OBGYN faculty had about sperm and why they would go up and why a count would go down. And I included all of these as research questions in this prospective study. And I put it all together and I marched into the office of the associate uh, chair of the department, who I was supposed to be working for, and uh, explained the study that I thought should be done. And he said, excellent study. He says, "Um, I wonder who we can get to do that. And I looked at him and I thought, my goodness, I wrote it. I'm a biological anthropologist. And I said, well, what about me? And he looked at me and the quote was, but you're a girl, unquote. Um, I was ready this time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was getting used to this. And this man was um, Iranian, and he was also, by religion, he was Baha'i. And Baha'is are egalitarian. And so I said to him, I said, aren't you Baha'i? And he said, yes. And I said, aren't Baha'is egalitarian? And he said, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I paused, and he said, you're right. You're the perfect person to do that. He said, not only that, but... I have some extra funds. I will fund this study. And so um, for a short time, I became a world-famous spermologist by doing (laughs) a a prospective study on sperm. Now, when it came to publishing, um, we ended up publishing in, oh, three, four, five different journals. And the the first journal I submitted to, uh, after my name, um, the letters are always PhD, comma, RN, well, for this particular journal, the, the galley proofs, they always send you what the article's going to look like, and you have to find do the final approval. And the RN was missing. So I wrote them back, and um, I said, no RN, no article. <laughs> I'll submit it someplace else. The RN went on the article. Uh, so that's an, another example of... It's just, it's ubiquitous. I mean, it's, this is part of their culture. It's something that all of us learn, men and women. And it's a matter of educating and sensitizing yourself and then developing a strategy to educate and sensitize others. Yeah, absolutely. And you know that what you were just talking about actually lends itself very well to this next question because, uh, which I think what I bring this next point up, we can see the progression in the, some of the stories you just told us. But during this phase of your life, you told me that you really discovered your voice. And so can you give us a few examples of how your voice blossomed and how you felt you became stronger? Sure. As background, um, I was always somewhat shy um, as, a, as a youngster. And in order to become a professional, respected 
a lot of that shyness has to be overcome. And that took practice, watching others and how they did it. And one of the things that really helped me were the courses that I was taking in sociology and anthropology. And I found so many uh, correlates with what was happening um, in my life and especially in my professional life. For example, every Tuesday morning, they had something called Grand Rounds. And these were three-hour lectures, and they were held in a large tiered auditorium with three or 400 people, many of them OBGYN physicians from all over the Detroit metropolitan area. And we were all expected to attend Grand Rounds. Well, one day, there was a guy that came in, and he did a presentation on breast cancer. And halfway through his presentation, up comes a centerfold from Playboy. And the men in the auditorium laughed. None of the women laughed. I was shocked. I didn't know what to do. I became angry. And I talked to some of the women after the grand rounds. I said, why didn't you say something? This is, this is totally unacceptable. And they said, we're afraid. We're afraid to say something. We're barely guests here. They don't like women OBGYN physicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, we're not even sure that they like their women patients at that time. And so I figured I'm going to have to do something because they can't. So I went back to my sociology of sex roles course, and I know that when women get angry, our voices go up. Sometimes we become emotional. We Sometimes we can even cry. And that sets men off. They can't stand that. Uh, we become what they call strident. And so I had to figure out a strategy. And I decided that if I only said a few words... I could get away with it before I became so angry and emotional, my voice would go up. So I sat in front of a mirror and I would stand up and say, that's not funny. (laughs) And sit down again. And I did it over and over and over again. And oh, five or six months later, another OBGYN physician came from another state to talk about the latest research on breast cancer. And sure enough, Halfway through the lecture, up came the centerfold. I didn't remember thinking I had to do something. It was automatic. I was in the third row on the left. I know exactly where I was sitting, and I could still see that man. And I just stood up, and in a loud, low voice, I said, that's not funny, and sat down. (laughs) You could have heard a pin drop in that room. To his credit, The chair of the department stood up. He looked at the slide. He turned around. He looked at me. And he looked at the audience and he said, she's right. That's not funny. And he he pointed up to the uh, projectionist. We didn't have PowerPoints in those days. And he said, remove that slide. There was never another slide with another centerfold after that. Wow. And, uh, and after that grand rounds, the women came up to me. Some of them had tears in their eyes. And that's when I realized, you know, you expect your elders or people that are older or more experienced or, or have a higher status than you sometimes to do things, to do the right thing. And sometimes they can't. And they can't for very logical reasons. And I figured 
I, I have to. Yeah. Um, if I can't do it, you know, somebody has to do this. Yeah. So that was um, one example of how this happened. Another funny one. I was taking a course in non-human primates, you know, chimps and baboons and things like that, in anthropology. And I had just come from a course on baboons. And we learned all about the baboon hierarchies and, you know, the alpha, and the beta and the gamma males and, and the females and what their, their roles were in this baboon troop. And there was a, uh, a reception uh, in the afternoon and we were all milling around talking to one another. And I was talking with one of the other PhDs and we were wrapped in a, a really interesting discussion. And all of a sudden the chair of the department moves himself in between the two of us facing me to ask me a question. I mean, that was just one of the most impolite things I've ever seen. And I answered his question and then it hit me. That's what baboons do. I thought, my <laughs> goodness, I, I'm a member of a baboon troop. And so I backed away along the wall and I began to observe. I observed who touched who, who interrupted who, and I began to document the entire status hierarchy within the OBGYN department. And there were only three women, and I was the, the most junior of all of them. And the two other women, one was a full professor, but the men just dismissed her. They would ignore her, even though she had research grants, and I thought she was wonderful. The other one was a geneticist who worked in basic science, and nobody paid any attention to her, and she never opened her mouth. And so I had to figure out, how am I going to move up this hierarchy? I definitely can never be an alpha male, because I'm not one of those. And I can't be a physician, because I'm not one of those, and I don't want to be one of those. So the question I had for myself was, how can you create a role for yourself? You need to move up so that the people will leave you alone and you can do your own research. And that became much of the rest of, of what I focused on when I was in that OBGYN department. Yeah, it's amazing. And just to give people perspective, because I guess I didn't do this uh, at the beginning, but what sort of uh, time period are we talking about here? Uh, this was 25 years from uh, 1972 until 1997 when I left. Yeah, yeah. So again, I just want to point out that it's women like Marilyn who paved the way for us. So thank you, Marilyn. And, you know, once you really started to find your voice and use it and get comfortable with it, there's a little bit of an interesting story here. How did your male colleagues label you? <laughs> <laughs> well, one of them kept referring to me as Ms. with lots of Z's at the end of it. <laughs> Um, and I just smiled at him and called him by his first name yeah. instead of doctor, whatever. Um, the thing is, if you respect yourself and you communicate that, others will respect you. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't expect people just to respect you just because of who you are. You have to communicate self-respect. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I did was, uh, after I got my PhD, if somebody called me by my first name, which is fine, I call them by their first name. And uh, that makes some men 
very uncomfortable. Yeah. And so I would let them define what our relationship was, but it was as Dr. Lakin and Dr. whatever, or by the first name. So there, there are a bunch of little things that you can do um, that are really not so little. Right. Yeah. You leveled the playing ground and you you kind of created what it was going to be. And then you did it in a confident and firm way, which is which I love. And so once you started to gain momentum, you began to see things in the OB department that you wanted to change. What were some of the things that you wanted to change? And how did you go about making those changes? Well, it depended on what the circumstances were. Uh, for example, there were a series of lectures that were all recorded um, for medical students to teach them about uh, prenatal care and postpartum care and those sorts of things. And they all had cute names like postpartum care with Gina Lollipop is the name of the one that I remember. <laughs> and I had learned in the sociology of sex roles how women are treated like children. And you can't use these cute names. That's not how we want to socialize medical students. And in that case, the uh, chair had already gotten to know that I was a little bit different <laughs> from what he expected. You were no lollipop. No. <laughs> so I just, you know, knocked respectfully on his door and told him about, there were several of these that all had cute names, and told him about that. Um, but in other cases, uh, it took a, how to take a different tack. Um, for example, there were uh, plastic models of breasts and pelvics um, where you would learn to do a pelvic exam or learn to do a breast exam. Today, we have very expensive robots. Um, but in those days, we had these hard plastic models. And it was Patty Breast and Betsy Pelvis. Uh, and I mean, this is the same thing of being childish and having these mostly male medical students oriented toward women as children. Mm -hmm. And in that case, I wrote to the company that made them. And uh, I CC'd National Organization for Women, <laughs> the AMA, the American College of OBGYN. I had a whole list of CCs at the end of, it, of the letter. It was never actually sent to them. But what the letter said was, this is a problem we have. Um, in treating women like children. It's disrespectful and it's harmful to women and it's harmful to men. And I wondered if in the vein of the cute names, if they would come up with a male pelvic model and name him Peter Pecker. And, <laughs> I'm sorry. That was, that was, I the, love you. Um, that was the letter. Um, <laughs> and eventually they, they got rid of all three of the models. So there's no more <laughs> Betty and Pat, Patsy or whatever they were. Uh, I mean, there were lots of things. Um, it's always bothered me that you go into an OBGYN office to be examined, and the bottom of the of the table faces the door. That's you know, you're very vulnerable at that time. There's no privacy. Mm -hmm. You know, who who are you? You know, you're just a woman. You're a you're a child. We'll, we'll do what we want with you. And so I had an opportunity to redesign the exam rooms. I turned the table around so it faced a wall. I pushed it back toward the end of the, of, the, uh, of the exam room. I removed a little teeny curtain that they had there, and I put a curtain from one side of the wall to the other 
where the woman had control of most of the room. And when you entered the room, you only had just a couple of feet and you were facing a curtain. And then I put uh, speculum warmers in the drawers. Uh, these were all metal speculums at that time. And they were cold. Mm, oh, I remember those. Yeah, I remember well, those. These were, yeah. uh, I put little heating pads in there because they didn't have anything else and plugged them into the table and kept them on low. And uh, we only had uh, the faculty who were doing exams on the women in, in the particular area where I was assigned to. And uh, I would teach them all how to pick up the speculum, feel it in your other gloved hand to make sure the temperature was right before using it. And eventually it got through the entire department, but only after the wife of one of the physicians heard about it. You know, her husband came home and said, oh, you won't guess what Marilyn did today. She did. Da, 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 da. <laughs> and evidently, this woman gave him the whatever and said, you know, that's wonderful. You should let every woman in Detroit know that Wayne State University takes them seriously. Yeah. And they did. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, it's, it's these magical women that come to your aid. Yeah. But I mean, it, it just, you know, the fact that for an area of uh, medicine that is treating women exclusively to not like have the input of a woman as to how to treat the woman. I mean, it's just, I love that you went in there and you spoke up because, pff, as you said, you know, who are these children that are on our table that we're, you know, going to use this cold speculum on and all of this? And, and you know, even just facing the door. I mean, it's so demeaning, you know, to, I mean, just, it's such a vulnerable position to be in anyway, as any woman listening to this knows well. But I love that you did all of that. And, you ended up as the head of your division and you had lots of research money coming in. I mean, you were, you're doing great things. You had great connections. How did that feel to you? I mean, when you got to that point after all that work? Well, I don't know that I ever thought about it. Uh, it evolved slowly. Um, in any research career, you begin with, you know, your first grant and then you, you begin to get skilled at writing research proposals and conducting the research. And Detroit is um, a place where they had one of the highest infant mortality rates in the country. So there were lots of needs for finding ways to improve access to prenatal care and uh, improving the care itself. So there was a tremendous need in there. And it was just a matter of coming up with creative ideas, working with many others, um, and I also worked with city and, and state health department officials, and I learned from them what policies they were working on, which helped to direct some of the research I was doing. The other thing about the research is going back to the culture of OBGYN and what do they pay attention to. Uh, they pay attention to how much money you bring in. It's obnoxious. Um, but that's where their focus was. That was not my focus. My focus was doing research that was meaningful and would be helpful. Uh, but their research, their interest was on money. And there was one time when I wrote three different grants hoping I'd get one of them. I got all three. 
they stood up and they took notice. So I was, quote, bringing in more money, unquote, than anybody else in the department. And that's how I began to change my status. I can't put anything in baboon society that would be comparable to exactly <laughs> what I was. Um, and it, it didn't exactly fit the model because I didn't fit the model. Yeah. But people knew that there was something powerful. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just thought it was fun. Well, you know, you were the renegade and the outlier. And I love that. I love that. And But even with all of that going on, there was still, and there's a particular instance that stands out to me from what we talked about, where uh, you still had to stand up for yourself to keep that research money. And what was, are you okay talking about that particular instance? Oh, um, there are lots of examples. Well, let me give you one. I think I know where yeah. you're going. We can talk yeah, about that yeah. one in a minute. Yeah. Okay. But there was one in the in particular, and this was one of the um, the medical residents who was going through a rotation in one of the divisions. And um, there was a division head who was totally inappropriate. And uh, out came a quid pro quo, have sex with me, or you will not pass. And of all the women in the department, I was the only one that she thought might be able to help her. So she came to me. I was horrified. And I went to the chair. And he said, well, I know this guy's a problem. And I thought to myself, oh. you know he's a problem. Why didn't you do something about it? Well, these were the years right before the sexual harassment uh, mm -hmm. cases um, mm -hmm. became serious for businesses and universities. So it was still kind of treated like, aha, you know, boys will be boys kind of thing. Uh. And he looked at me and I said, this is a problem and you need to do something about it. You're the chair of the department. I mean, at that point, I could talk to him that way. At any rate, he said, I don't think it's any of your business. I said, I'm a woman. It is my business. And so he said, well, what should we do? I said, we need to do a Grand Rounds presentation on sexual harassment. And so I got a hold of a university lawyer, a hospital lawyer, and I learned all about sexual harassment from them. And they were just beginning to be legal suits with big settlements. We did a Grand Rounds presentation, and everybody was required to be there. And afterwards, they set up a sexual harassment committee made up of three members of the department that people trusted. And if in the future, if any woman or man felt uncomfortable you were to go to that committee and they would they would address the problem fantastic i did now i did that's a new one we didn't talk about that no that, we didn't yeah there's so yeah. many of them yeah i mean yeah you you had your hands full you had your hands full of these baboons <laughs> the baboon society yeah and and you actually they wanted to take some of your research money right and give it to another department person? Yes, that was an interesting one. You know, one of the ways that women are marginalized and something that strikes fear into most women is to be labeled a bitch. Um, a bitch is a dog, but they've used the term to control women so that we are not aggressive. We don't act like men. Um, if they don't like our behavior, we want you to go back and being appropriate in your sexual role. And um, I always knew about this, and I knew of other women who had been labeled in this way, but I had never been labeled a bitch. 
at least to my knowledge. And uh, one day, there was a member of our department, uh, a man who was an associate professor, and uh, this was ta- the time when, when it, you come up for a, a promotion, and you or you want a promotion, or you expect it, and you go and you talk to the chair. And in this case, there were clear guidelines for how people were to be promoted, and to be a full professor, you had to have funded research. And he had everything else he needed but this one thing. And it was during that time that I had just gotten those three grants. They were all federal grants. And so um, in the middle of this meeting that they were having, it was four or five of the faculty, and there were two admin assistants in there. And I got this phone call, and he said, "Um, I need you to do me a favor. We got a real problem. So-and-so needs to be promoted, and he's missing a research grant. I thought to myself, okay. I said, how can I help? And he said, we want you to give one of your research grants to him. (laughs) One of those things. First of all, it's unethical. It's unprofessional. It's immoral. It's illegal. And I couldn't do it even if I wanted to. Because I wrote it, I have a project officer on the federal level, and I, you just don't do that. Uh, this guy didn't know anything about what I was doing. Uh, he, he wasn't capable. Um, you, you just can't do that. I thought that was really a stupid thing to, to ask me to do. And I said, I can't. I tried to explain that to him, and he over-talked me and, no, we've got to do it. He's really important. We've got to get him promoted. But I can't. Yes, you can. I said, I can't. And I won't. Slam went the phone. I thought, (laughs) okay, it's just one of those other things that happened in the OBGYN department. And then about an hour and a half later, there was a scratching on my door. And I said, come in. And one of the admin assistants quickly came in and shut the door. She says, I have to talk to you. I said, what's the problem? She said, they called you a bitch. And I said, yay, finally. I've been waiting for years to be called a bitch. Oh, this is so wonderful. I am so proud. Thank you. Thank you for telling me this. And she's looking at me with abject horror. And um, I said, oh, I can't wait to tell everybody. She says, you're going to what? I said, I won't tell her where it came from. But everybody needs to know. This is such wonderful news. Thank you so much for telling me. <laughs> and so I began telling people in the in the whole I knew everybody in the university just about. And so guess what happened to me today? <laughs> so I turned a negative around into a positive. Yeah. And then I was at a national meeting. Um, uh, the American Association of Medical Colleges had a program to help junior women figure out how to make their way through the hierarchy of a medical school and get promoted. And I was one of the faculty. And the topic that I was given was the art of self-promotion. And uh, halfway through my lecture, without preparing them for anything, I had a big fat slide. The background was pure black and five very thick white letters, B-I-T-C-H, <laughs> appeared on the, uh, in the front of them. And they all went, <gasps> you know, gasps and terrible, you know, their hands were just around their faces and they were horrified. And I said, freeze. Slowly look to your left and right. Take a look at what the women around you look like. And they began to see. I said, okay, you can relax now. 
let's talk about this word. Yeah. And so we talked about what it meant. Well, there were two women in the way in the back that were junior faculty from my university. <laughs> Within two days of going back, I got a phone call from the person who called me a bitch. I never called you a bitch. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you calling me to tell me this? <laughs> How did you know you were the person? I said, I never used your name. <laughs> At any rate, we did some negotiations and I got something from him that he didn't want to give to me. And, and I stopped calling, telling people that he called me a bitch. <laughs> Until now. Until now, right. <laughs> Until now. <laughs> I, I love that story. And I loved your reaction to it because it, you know what? It's like, yeah, I have rattled the cages enough for them to be intimidated and concerned enough mm -hmm. to call me a bitch. Right. You know, I mean, it really, it shows that there was a power shift there. And you know what? We take those words and we own them and we, we make them our own. And then then they have no power That's right. anymore. Turn them around. You know, and turn them around and own the word and own what it means. You know, put it in your own definition to it. And I, I want to ask you, I have a couple more things that I want to ask you before we wind down. But before I move on to those, I know that you actually testified before Congress. Yep. And what did you testify about? What was the result? Because that's something that I'm really curious about myself. Well, Things generally don't happen the way you expect them to. And there was a time when I was sitting in my office and I got a call from a reporter. Uh, and she wanted to know why women in Detroit were not coming in for prenatal care. At that time, Detroit had one of the highest infant mortality rates in the country. And one of the correlates of that was lack of prenatal care. I didn't have an answer for her. I knew was familiar with the research, and I knew that lack of transportation or lack of insurance, and I told her what was in the literature, but I said, you know, I can't answer your question as it relates to the women in Detroit, but I'm going to find out. And so that became um, almost a lifelong interest of mine, um, is to answer that question. And so uh, that was part of the federal funding that I had. And I would go into first my own hospital. And then eventually I was going into hospitals all over the state of Michigan, doing interviews postpartum with women. And I would select a woman who had received no prenatal care. Uh, you can easily find them. You can find them on the at labor and delivery. If they received no prenatal care, it said no prenatal care. You know these are <laughs> bad women. Um, and so um, that would be after she delivered. I would interview that woman, and then I would interview a woman who had delivered at the same time who had received prenatal care to get a comparison. And over time, I had thousands of these interviews. And uh, there were so many reasons why women don't receive prenatal care. And in most of the cases, they are quite rational. I wouldn't receive prenatal care either if I lived their lives. Uh, mm -hmm. Many of these interviews were purely qualitative. It's tell me your story, just as we are, where you begin with general questions, beginning with, when did you first think you might be pregnant? How did you know you were pregnant? So it's just being an anthropologist, pretending you know nothing, that they are the experts as they are, and have them tell their story. At any rate, the testimony before Congress, uh, there were actually two of them. The first one was in Washington. And uh, at that time, 
they were debating what to do with prenatal care. They knew that women all over the country were often not receiving it. And the research that I had began to give them the underlying reasons for it and that they were quite rational. So I went, I had never testified before Congress. All I had seen was, you know, bad people who were testifying before Congress. And I hadn't done anything wrong. <laughs> so I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Right. I don't know. I think you're wrong. Exactly. She was just my intern. <laughs> yes. So I did stories. I did statistics. I didn't know what they wanted to hear. Um, but I, And I only had 15 minutes. So I gave them the information. And then, you know, I, I'm used to doing academic presentations where people challenge you on specific things, you know. How do you know this happened with it? You know, and you give them, you defend your statistics or your methods or whatever. And instead, what I got was a question of what one thing can we do to fix this problem? And I, I was one of those other times I didn't know what to say. You know, I just gave you 89 different reasons why women aren't coming in for you want to know what right. one thing. And then I thought to myself, hold it. They're the elected officials. You're just a person. You need to give them something that they can use in a useful way for women. You need to pay back all of these thousands of women that gave you their story. And I don't quite know where it came from, but I said the one thing that you can do is to make it easier to get prenatal care than to not get prenatal care. In other words, make it a health care right. And while you're at it, I said one of the biggest barriers is to get Medicaid insurance. Embed Medicaid insurance along with the doctor, the first visit that they come in to see the doctor. Don't tell them you can't see them, that they have to go to the Medicaid office. And then they get to the Medicaid office and Medicaid office says, we can't give you insurance because you need a note from a doctor saying that you're pregnant. That's just ridiculous. There were so many ridiculous barriers like that. And so that was the focus. And evidently, it was um, my interview, plus many others, and the work, the important work of many of the uh, officials at the various federal agencies that finally got prenatal care as embedded in uh, Medicaid insurance. Now, that right there is something to be really proud of. You know, I mean, uh, everything you've done is something to be proud of, but that's huge. That's huge. And do you feel that women are still facing some of the same issues that you did today? I do. Even with all of the new laws, federal laws and state laws and local policies to protect us, it's part of our culture. In fact, it's part of many cultures around yeah. the world. I don't know why men are so afraid of women, but they are. I mean, there are many places in the world, as long as you're menstruating, you, you can't touch men's things. You can't. I mean, yeah. it's true. It's amazing to study how women have been marginalized and controlled over thousands and thousands of years. Although there are some cultures where there is egalitarianism, where men and women share responsibilities and they share their roles. It doesn't have to be this way, but it is this way. And the problem is we're all socialized like this. It becomes like wallpaper. You don't see it unless somebody points it out to you. Yeah, yeah. And what's like your top 
strategy, one or two strategies that you would like to offer up to the women listening and maybe, you know, for the men to to hear? Um, because I think, you know, sometimes if you're not walking in our high heels, you just don't know, you know? So what do you really want women to know? A couple of things that you think are so, because you know, you've learned. I mean, you have been walking this path for a long time. Well, the first is to begin to know yourself. And this isn't something that's easy. And it takes years to learn yourself. And you also have to, you need to know your strengths, your weaknesses. Go with your strengths. Do what you can with your weaknesses or just kind of hide them somewhere. But but go with your strengths. Um, take yourself seriously, or at least learn to. If you're not taking yourself seriously, you need to know that. And then you need to think about how to begin to change yourself. You can't change other people, but you can change yourself. And that means you need to be self-aware. I think all of the crazy courses I took in sociology and anthropology, and there were times when I thought these were irrelevant, they turned out to be quite relevant. And then understand sex roles, whether you're a man or a woman. We've all been socialized in them. And many of them are unhealthy, and they're, uh, they're unhealthy for us, and they're unhealthy for others. And uh, for women, don't let them marginalize you. Get over the word bitch. Start saying it. Say it yeah. out loud. <laughs> Yell it Hear out that all loud. you bitches? Exactly. Hear that all you bitches? And that's what <laughs> that's what we did in the auditorium. We're all hundreds yeah. of women were calling each other a bitch. And yeah. that's how you just get over it. Oh, I love it. That's great advice. I like that. And before we wind up and I ask you my famous last question, um, I know that currently, even though you're retired, you're not really like retired. You're you're on to the next thing. And you are, are you okay sharing your age? Oh yeah. I just turned yeah. 80 last week. So you are 80. At, yep. Although you would, listen, obviously from the energy in your voice, nobody would know it, but you wouldn't <laughs> know it to look at her either because I'm looking at her right now. But you've decided to start questioning the aging process and what that means. And I, mm-hmm. I love that. Uh, Can you give us just a brief synopsis about what that's all about? Sure. I just moved to a continuing care retirement community and independent living because I'm tired of running a house. I don't want to pick weeds. I don't want to, I don't want to have people come in and fix things. I'm just tired of that. I want to get on with other things. So I moved here and I suddenly realized, oh my goodness, I'm in a community with old people. (laughs) And I've never been old before, so I don't know what this is all about any more than going into that OBGYN department. And so I've turned back into an anthropologist. I have begun interviewing people. Uh, At first, I would see people in walkers and wheelchairs. Oh, no, no, that's not me. And I said, it's going to be. You'd better get used to it. And you'd better learn from these people. And I have met some of the most wonderful people. So I'm, I'm learning the decisions that people make as they get older, men and women, their losses, their joys, what they've learned, um, how they live their lives. And I'm beginning now to interview people at the end of life because I need to get a better understanding of this as well. 
And um, in fact, I've outlined a book. Um, it's not, you know, how things wear out and fall off. This is a book that's mostly focused on on your feelings and your strategies and having a quality life for what is left. And uh, hopefully there'll be lots of years left. Um, in fact, I'm having so much fun here talking with people about things and they're very open and happy to have somebody ask these questions because generally you don't, nobody asks them. They, they just don't pay any attention to them. Or if they do, you're often treated like a child, just like the women coming into the OB department. Yeah. And so I, I'm still working on some of the best ways of um, reacting to these 20-some-year-old kids that say, oh, Miss Marilyn, I'm so happy to see you again. Their voices go up like when you're talking to a child. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, try- I'm experimenting with different approaches. Um, I'm also thinking of going back to work. Um, there's a shortage of nurses. There's a shortage of nursing teachers. There's a shortage of consultants. Uh, I know quality improvement. I know how to teach. Uh, in fact, I'm still teaching, although right now I'm teaching anthropology and thoroughly enjoying it. So this is just a new phase. It's no different from any of the other phases. And there will be products, things that come out of this that hopefully uh, will be helpful to others. Well, I feel that there is another podcast in our future, Marilyn, to talk more about this because another really important topic and the baby boomers, which I believe are still the biggest sort of group, are all starting to age. And even if you're not a boomer, your parents are, right? So to understand right. what your parents are going through. So I think, wow, yeah. So there's another podcast in our future. But for this one, I have to ask you the question I ask everybody at the end of the podcast, Marilyn, and although you've already shared a lot of wisdom, what wise words do you have for the other daughters of change out there that are listening? Three things I think are important. The first, that life is a journey and it's full of unexpected twists and turns. It's full of change and it's full of gifts. There are always opportunities. You never know where they are. Um, but they're there. And sometimes they come to you. And sometimes you need to go and seek them out. And the other thing that I've learned is that some of the best lessons in life are the painful ones. <laughs> and instead of just curling up, you know, going to bed or something, learn from them, embrace them, write them down, think about them and learn from them. And then they won't be so painful anymore. Marilyn, I have thoroughly enjoyed meeting you, getting to know you, and having this conversation with you in our pre-conversation prior to this. And I can't wait to find out what's coming out of this next phase for you and all of the cool things you're doing. And I know there <laughs> I know there are going to be some really interesting stories. And uh, I know that you're going to be helping people. There are going to be, as you said, products coming out of this. So I want to thank you again so much for giving us your time and sharing your wisdom. And before we head off into the sunset, any final thoughts or words? I want to thank you for doing this. Um, I never had a mentor and there was very little help that I ever received along the way, except for some of these strange individuals that would enter my life. So I think you're doing these podcasts is very important. Keep it up. Keep it up.